All right. Today we are starting a new sermon series in the New Testament book of Acts. And so over the next number of months, we're going to be going through the first three chapters of Acts, and then we're going to be taking a break for Advent. Um, and then we'll see what's going to happen in the new year if we continue to go through uh, the book of Acts. But that, that's kind of our MO here at Center Church. We walk through books of the Bible. Uh, typically, we do take breaks at times to do some topical stuff and so forth, but we typically walk through books of the Bible. So we just finished up a series answering the question, what is the church? And that series was a great lead into this series, the book of Acts, because this book is about the formation of Jesus' church. So from answering the question, what is the church, to now going through kind of the beginning days of the formation of Jesus' church, it's a play-by-play recounting of how the gospel advanced in the early days. And so as we begin, I want to provide just a little bit of context about the book of Acts, and then this morning we're going to look at the first five verses of the book. So Acts is the fifth book of the New Testament. So there's the four gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and Acts is the fifth book of the New Testament. And it's written by an individual named Luke. Now one interesting thing about this book is that it's part two in a series. Acts is part two in a series. So part one is actually the gospel of Luke the third book in the New Testament. And so when you combine these two books together, what you find is that Luke, the author, actually wrote about, in terms of ink spilled, about a third of the New Testament because both of these books are pretty lengthy books. So it's a two-part series. Now, Luke is referenced in Colossians 4.14 as a physician. So being a physician, Luke is known to be a well-researched, meticulous writer, which would be in line with his work as a doctor. But, But also then, coming from this angle as a physician, we find him to be, at times, evidence-based, a bit scientific or maybe analytical. I know my wife is analytical. She, she really thinks through things and, and this can cause her to be skeptical at times, right? But, but maybe for some of, of you who find yourself in that kind of boat that Acts might be a good book for you because Luke will come at this at times from a very analytical approach. Okay, what I want to do now is I want to go back to the beginning of Luke to kind of just get a sense as to where Luke is coming from because he kind of sets up his premise at the beginning of Luke. So this is what he says, Luke 1, 1 through 4. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught." Okay, so what Luke is setting out to do here is to compile an account that will be orderly. He cares about reliability in writing and record keeping. He has been following the people and events he's writing about closely for some time, it says here, right? So he's been paying attention. And there's intention then in what he's doing. But look then at why he's doing this. He wants his readers to have certainty 
about the things that he is writing. And ultimately, what we find Luke writing about, both in the Gospel of Luke and in the book of Acts, is Jesus and his church. He wants his readers, those in the first century, but also us today, to have certainty about Jesus and about his church. Okay, so Luke then. Luke was a Gentile, which means he's a non-Jew. And I think for many of us in the Western world, when we hear non-Jew or Gentile, we can immediately think white. And maybe when we hear the name Luke, maybe we think white as well. So he was a Gentile, but he was also a Middle Eastern man, okay? So I just want to state this explicitly. Luke was not a white American male. He wasn't. Okay, so, so, so maybe there's some work that we need to do to kind of understand where he's coming from. But he would have looked differently than most of us in this room. As I mentioned earlier, the book of Acts is the story of the beginning and the formation of Jesus' church. Now, there's a number of themes that are going to pop out throughout the book of Acts. So a number of these things are the Holy Spirit. And I know some of us have grown up in church contexts where maybe the Holy Spirit was like a really big deal or maybe the deal. And, and so we're going to delve into the Holy Spirit because it's going to be front and center. Uh, he's going to be front and center at times throughout the book of Acts. Also miracles are a thing that pop up regularly within the book of Acts. Also, the conversion of Christians so we're going to be able to witness and see people believing, placing trust in Jesus, but then what follows the conversion oftentimes is also suffering. And even in some cases, martyrdom, meaning they are dying because of their belief in Jesus. We're also going to encounter church planting, which is the idea of churches being established, where there was no people and a church being raised up in a certain city. Acts also has the first Christian sermon, and it also has the first church council, and so we'll bump into those things eventually as well. But most of all, there's a lot of Jesus. There's a lot of Jesus in Acts, and so that's where we will locate a lot of our focus as we work through this book. Now, this, the, the book of Acts is a narrative, so we're going to learn about a lot of events and things that happened in the earlier church, but they're coming through riveting stories. And this is one of the beautiful things about Acts is that it is a riveting narrative, some really good stories in this book. Okay, so there's so much more I could say about this book in terms of introduction, but let me just encourage you to try and find some time to spend reading these books. If you would sit down and read through, for sure, the first three chapters of Acts, but, I, but I'd encourage you to read the whole book of Acts, and maybe you do this over a month or something. But if you also wanted to go and read the Gospel of Luke as well, understanding where Luke is coming from, some of his perspective will also help us understand the book of Acts as well. So I'd encourage you guys to, to spend some time reading those two books. 
if any of you have questions about the construction of Acts or just about Acts in general, I'd be happy to meet up and chat with you. I know we, we don't spend a ton of time doing intros uh, when we start new sermon series, but if any of you are interested, you want books to read or resources, I'm happy to pass along some things to you, or if you'd like to chat more about it, you can just send me a message. Okay, so let's jump into these first five verses of the book of Acts. I'm going to read these verses, and then uh, we'll work through them. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Let's pray. God, thank you for the book of Acts. Thank you for the many things that we can learn through this book. I pray as we are venturing down this road right now that you would begin to tenderize our hearts through your Holy Spirit to work in us that we might believe increasingly the good news of Jesus, that we would believe the gospel. And would you help us to see how the gospel is actually good news in our everyday lives, that it's not something that we just kind of acknowledge for an hour on Sunday morning or when things go bad, but this is pertinent, relevant to every part, every minute of every day of our lives. And so would you begin to work in us in ways to show us, to give us tenderness towards your things, your truth, and would you have your way in our hearts even now as we spend this time looking at these first five verses. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Okay, I wanna begin by addressing, first of all, the addressee here, whose name is Theophilus. So you may have noticed when I read the first four verses from the Gospel of Luke that this same individual was referenced in those verses as well. So much has been written about who this individual is. It seems to be referencing a very specific individual whose name is Theophilus. And that very well could be the case. And if that is the case, there's not much that we know about this individual. But a whole lot else has been written about this individual or so-called individual in this direction. Because it gets a bit interesting when looking at the meaning of the name. So the beginning of the name Theophilus is rooted in the Greek word theos, which means God, okay? And the last part of the name is rooted in the Greek word phileo, which speaks of love or a lover or being loved. So when you put these together, some have made the argument that this is a general address to lovers of God or God lovers, I think either could be in view, whether it is 
that general reference to maybe Jesus' church or a specific individual um, being Theophilus. But, but one emphasis here that I want to give, if it is lovers of God, if it is referring to Jesus' church, I want to be really careful not to, to not gloss over the foundation of this reality of lovers of God. So what's below lovers of God? Lovers of God are that because God first loved them. Okay? So, so we don't want to just jump over that foundational premise. So in Acts, we're going to read many things that Christians do. Acts isn't about all the ways we need to ensure we are acting in order to ensure God is loving us. It's about God's love for his church through Jesus, through his Holy Spirit, primarily. But then how this love forms the church in ways that are at various times distinctive and attractive and also offensive at times as well. So I don't think we need to get hung up, whether this is a specific individual or this is a general reference to Jesus church. Okay, Luke begins then by referencing what he sought to write about in part one of his series. He says, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. So this is foundational to everything he's going to be writing in the book of Acts. The stories and events he's going to be writing about in Acts find their origin, their genesis, their motivation in Jesus. The things that Jesus taught are what his followers are going to be teaching as well. And when they're not teaching what Jesus taught, there's going to be a call back to what Jesus had previously taught. And so we, we take this same approach here at Center Church as well. We are not trying to be novel. We're not trying to say something new when we gather together on Sunday morning. In fact, we would be concerned if that's what we were doing. We want to say things that are old because those things have been tried and true. They've been proven trustworthy. They've proven they can withstand all cultures, all whims, all times, and all objections. And so we work really hard here to focus in on the things that Jesus has done and the things that Jesus has said and to let those things guide us in everything that we do as a church. Okay, so he's dealing with all that Jesus began to do and teach. And this is what Luke is doing as he begins this book. And then not surprisingly, the next place he goes to here in Acts is he references Jesus' death and his resurrection. Okay, so this is the very heart of the gospel. This is the core of Jesus. His death and his resurrection. And we get a sense of Luke's evidence-based approach here. So Luke points to, he uses this phrase, the many proofs Jesus offered up in the days following his resurrection. 
Okay, so, so if we go back to Jesus when he died, people, there's not a lot of people, whether they're for or against Jesus, that are going to object to his suffering. Okay, this was a public display, a public spectacle. There's, there's lots of literature and documentation about Jesus' suffering. In fact, his opponents celebrated this reality. Okay, but it was his resurrection where issues begin to arise. And so what Jesus wanted to do is he wanted to ensure that his resurrection was well documented. So he appeared to individuals, many individuals. He wanted to sturdy those individuals' faith. He also spent time with his disciples following his resurrection. He showed them his scars on his hands and his feet. He ate food with them as well, demonstrating to them, I'm, I'm not just this spiritual being. I also am physically embodied, and, and I'm eating food like you eat food as well. But he didn't just do this with individuals or small groups, because that could be easily dismissed. And, and there's actually a theory out there known as the hallucination theory, okay? So if someone goes through a traumatic event uh, and, and they maybe wish that that event would have not happened or turned out differently, they can begin to hallucinate in a sense to wanting a, a different outcome, okay? And, and this is a legitimate theory that people have put forward for many centuries regarding Jesus' resurrection. That They would say that the followers of Jesus were so distraught and this was so painful for them that people began to imagine or envision different realities, something that was not reality. And so they created this story as a resurrection. But Jesus thought through this as well. And we read in 1 Corinthians 15 that he appeared to more than 500 brothers and sisters at one time. So this hallucination theory loses all of its weight when you're talking about big groups because this just doesn't happen in big groups. Now, now that, this doesn't mean there aren't false teachers who persuade people to go kind of in a false way. That, that stuff still happens, but this idea of a hallucination theory, it's emptied of its weight when you're talking about hundreds of people. So what Luke is wanting to do and what he's trying to demonstrate that Jesus did is to ensure by many proofs the fact that Jesus did die and he went into a grave, but then he also came out of that grave. He rose from the dead. And in the same way that Luke is coming back to this foundational reality at the beginning of Acts, we likewise need to repeatedly come back to Jesus' death and his resurrection in our own thinking in our own living, in our own believing, we need to preach to our doubts this fact that hundreds of people saw Jesus alive after he was proven dead, after his tomb was put under heavy security by Roman guard. The tomb was actually empty. All of this actually occurred. And this is why we're going to see the church explode in the book of Acts. 
because people were following someone who actually died, went into a grave, and then actually walked out of that grave as well. This is what Christianity is founded upon. It's crazy, ludicrous, supernatural. But this is what happened. And that's why Jesus' church exploded in those early days. And this is why we ought to invest our lives in seeking gospel advancement today. To be bought into the fact that this is a worthwhile life endeavor. To see the good news of Jesus advanced. Because Jesus is alive. It's not just that we point back and say Jesus arose from the dead and that was meaningful for them, but that's true for us today as well. Jesus is alive. And the same power that we see demonstrated through his resurrection in the first century is true for us today as well. He still does miracles. He comes, and, and the greatest miracle being that he comes to sinners and he saves us. He forgives us of our sin. Okay. Let's move on to verses 4 and 5 here. And this is speaking about the promise of the Father. Okay? And then it's going to go on and, and reference that the promise of the Father is actually the Holy Spirit. All right? John 16, 7 says this. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Holy Spirit will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. So this is Jesus talking, okay? And he's saying, if he goes away, if he ascends to heaven to be with his father after his resurrection, it will be for our advantage, for those individuals' advantage. And so we learn in other places in the New Testament that the Holy Spirit is given to guide people, to help people, to instruct people, to rebuke people, to convict people of sin, and ultimately to make much of Jesus to people. And so this is the promise that will come to Jesus' church. It is the Holy Spirit. This is the promise that secures all of God's promises for those who believe. Now, we're going to delve more deeply into the Holy Spirit in coming weeks, so I'm going to limit my comments to that for now this morning. What I want to do then um, in the rest of our time is I want to note a general tone or direction in the language that's utilized here at the beginning of Acts because I think it's really crucial for how we are going to read the rest of the book and I would also say how we read the Bible. And I think this actually speaks to how we understand the reference to Theophilus earlier as well. So I want to, I just pulled out some phrases that kind of capture this. So Look at these phrases. Verse 2 says, he had chosen, talking about Jesus. Verse 3 says, he presented himself. Verse 3 also, appearing to them. And verse 4 says, wait for the promise. So what I want to highlight is an aspect of God that is consistent throughout the pages of Scripture. And that aspect is this idea that God takes initiative. God is an initiator. He is the one who is proactive. I'm thinking specifically of salvation here, but in, but in all of life, okay? So he's proactive. He is the one who pursues us. 
He rescues those who are in need of it. And, and this is really vital to understand who God is. He is taking the initiative with us. On the other side of God's proactivity is humanity's passivity. And we're going to explore this a bit further in just a moment. But first of all, so when we read in verse 2, he had chosen, this speaks about how God chooses. And what's communicated here and elsewhere in the Bible is that none of us choose God without him first coming to us. Okay? Our choosing of God is predicated on the fact that he has revealed himself to us. He came to us first and foremost. So in Acts chapter 9, we read of how Paul, okay? Paul wrote much of the New Testament. But Paul was going around and he was not a Christian at this time. And he was seeking to destroy Christians, okay? And God came to him while he was on this journey of destroying Christians and just walking along a road. And what's really clear in this story is God initiated with Paul. God came to Paul. God chose Paul. God saved Paul. Paul was trying to destroy Jesus and his followers with everything in his life. And God came to him and chose him. And then verse 3 speaks about Jesus presenting himself and appearing to his followers in the days after his death and resurrection. So it's important to remember the state of Jesus' followers in those days after he died. Okay, They were frightened, terrified, disillusioned, filled with fear. There was this man that they had put all of their hope and trust in. And they began to hide and feel ashamed. But this is what Jesus does. He comes to people who are full of shame. Jesus comes to people who are hiding. Jesus comes to people who are afraid. Jesus comes to them. Jesus makes himself known. He doesn't make people come to him He comes to them. This is hugely important to understand the Bible, to understand how salvation works. Okay, and I love how this last phrase gets included. As Jesus was with his fear-filled followers subsequent to his resurrection, this is what he says to them. Not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father. Okay, so what's the imperative here for them? What are they to do? You can say it. Someone say it. What? Wait. Right? Wait. That's what they're supposed to do. To wait for God to prove himself. To do what he promised he would do. But they must wait. They've got to wait. This, so, so if a motivational uh, speaker was up here right now, that, that would not be what came out of the motivational speaker's mouth. Just wait, right? No. Here's the things you need to do, right? Go and make it happen. This is actually a gut-wrenching imperative. 
they don't know when the promise is going to be fulfilled. No, no understanding, no structure of the when, right? Just wait. And they can't speed it along. So in our culture, someone in their position would be accused of being lazy. That's what we would say of this person. You're being lazy. The struggle we all feel in waiting in our everyday lives, I think, can suggest to us at times our difficulty in understanding that we are being saved. We are not saving ourselves. We are not doing things to save ourselves. We are being saved by Jesus. And this is where I want to come back to God's proactivity and our passivity. Because this is actually really profound. This is the basis of everything that Jesus taught. Grace. Undeserved favor. It's not what you do. It's what's done for you. By Jesus. This is foundational for everything else that we're going to encounter that will happen in the book of Acts. Think about this. If anything else was said here, anything else, like go and pray, like even good things, right? If anything else was said here by Luke, it would almost serve as a formula for how to get God to act for us, right? But, but there's nothing here except wait. Like in a church setting, what happens oftentimes is some church starts a program, right? And it becomes really seemingly successful. And then other churches look at that and they, they think, oh, we should do that. And then they implement it in their church context and it's a total flop. And it's like, what did we do wrong? Well, it wasn't the program. That's not where the power is. The power is found in Jesus. There's no method. There's no rule that we follow so that we can be saved. And this is demonstrated here in this call to wait. It's all we hear in this moment is wait. Wait for God to act on your behalf. Wait for God to come to you. Wait for God to fulfill his promise. So what's abundantly clear here is humanity is passive. They are receiving. God is giving. God is acting. And what's beautiful in all of this is the fact that we wait on God to do something. God isn't waiting on us. And what this mean that means then for us is that he's not waiting for us to fix ourselves. He's not waiting for us to clean ourselves up. Right? Like, once you get to this level of maturity as a Christian, then, then I'll accept you. Then you can do this thing. That that's not what the gospel is. That's not good news. Because then it just becomes this treadmill. I've got to now do this next thing. And then to advance to the next level, I've got to, I've got to do this next thing. And you just are on this treadmill where you go nowhere and you never understand, am I approved by God? Does he love me? Have I done enough? And that's not the gospel. You are approved by God through Jesus. Not through what you do but through Jesus. 
So God's not waiting for us to fix ourselves or clean ourselves up. He comes to us. He gives good gifts to us. He gives himself, his son, Jesus, to us and for us. He gives forgiveness so that our sin, the thing that separates us from God, can be dealt with, resolved, erased. He gives us righteousness. And the trade for him is we get righteousness, which means being made right, and he takes our sin and the punishment for our sin. He gives us freedom. And we all know that we've been enslaved to something or someone. And we still all battle this every day. And Jesus gives us freedom from that thing. He gives us grace, undeserved favor in his eyes. This is good news. This is the gospel. And this is what Jesus sought to spread and the early church sought to spread to every part of God's created world. This is the story of Acts, how it's going to unfold. Okay, we close here at Center Church our sermon time with what we call gospel application, okay? It's not about who we are or what we have done, it's about Jesus, who he is and what he's done. And, and our premise for this is when you walk out of here this morning, we are not giving you a list of to-dos to try and make you an approved good Christian. We want to send you out with good news. This is who Jesus is. And then the call is believe in him. Believe in Jesus so that we can walk out of here skipping, figuratively speaking. I mean, you can skip out of here and that's great, but skipping, not with a yoke put on us, okay? We should come and hear good news because that is what Jesus is. That's what Jesus brought was good news. Okay, so two points of gospel application for us this morning. First of all, Jesus presented himself alive. Okay, we read this in the verses we looked at this morning. This is not a call to make yourself into something, And so there's no imperative here to go dig up a dead Jesus, right? Go find him, okay? He comes to us. He reveals himself to us. This is good news. There is someone stronger than death, and that's Jesus. This is astounding, okay? The things we fear, ultimately death for a lot of us, right? There is someone greater than that, and that is Jesus, So let this fill you with joy. Let this wash over you. The the things that are causing you stress and anxiety that you are dreading, preach to those realities in life. Remind yourself, there is someone greater than death. There is someone that loves you so much, he, he went into the grave, he died for you. And then he presented himself alive. Secondly, then, is wait. Wait on Jesus. So as a staff, we talked about uh, this week how we tend to be so busy in our culture and, and in our lives and so in a rush throughout our days. And the idea of waiting 
is just something we tend to struggle with. I think probably all of us at some level struggle with waiting. We have been trained when we were babies to think as consumers, right? So we deserve to be served. That's what a consumer thinks, right? I go to a restaurant, why is my food taking so long, right? Like that's just how, why is this person driving so slow in the left lane, right? Like why? And this is just how we've been trained to think. This next week, you are going to find yourselves waiting at various times. And I want to encourage us as we find ourselves waiting this week to reflect on the fact that we wait on Jesus. He is not waiting on us in the sense of waiting for us to clean ourselves up. We are waiting on him. Knowing that he is a God who comes to us, who is faithful, who loves us perfectly. And if we find ourselves waiting, or I should say when we find ourselves waiting this week, there's probably a good reason for it. We might not see it. We might not understand why we have to wait in that moment. In fact, it might make us really angry. But our lack of infinite knowledge doesn't negate God's goodness. God promises to work good for those who love him, even through the toughest of circumstances. And if you're thinking about waiting, and if that feels like an offensive imperative, meaning there has to be more I can do, that's not enough of a task for me. I want to be able to add something to my task list so then I can put that check mark next to it to say it's done. My guess is we probably need to understand a bit more how passive we are in God's scheme of salvation. We are not saving ourselves. And friends, we don't want to save ourselves. That is not good news. We want Jesus to do it all, to come to us to save us. And yes, we will respond in faith. And there are things that will flow out of our lives, but those things are not going to make our salvation dependent on them. Okay? Good things will flow out of our lives. That's a different sermon, though. God's way of saving us is Him doing everything. So believe the gospel. Believe in Jesus, not in yourself. Okay, we're going to take a few moments to reflect on this reality, okay? We do this um, here at Center Church. We're, we're, we're just going to observe the Lord's Supper, and, and we're going to take a few moments to reflect on this provocative picture of Jesus going to the cross. This is a picture of a rescuer. As he lays his life down for us, he is doing for us what we cannot do on our own. Jesus provides us forgiveness of sin, something we can't do. All we can do is receive this from him. It's a gift. We are passive in this. So we wait on Jesus. And we're going to remind ourselves of this reality by observing, partaking of this bread and this juice or wine. So if you're a Christian, 
believing in Jesus' sacrifice for the forgiveness of your sins, I wanna invite you to participate in the Lord's Supper here with us. So you don't need to be, member, be a member here at Center Church. This is an open invitation. If you've never trusted in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, then we just wanna be clear, graciously clear, that this meal is not for you. But Jesus is for you, and we, Center Church are for you as well. And so we would want you to hear an invitation to trust in Jesus. And, and I'd love to chat with you after the fact uh, as well. And, and for those who might not participate, there's no judgment on you. So this bread that we're gonna partake of symbolizes Jesus' body that was given as a sacrifice as a sin for, or as a sacrifice for, as a sin offering for us. And the juice and wine symbolizes Jesus' blood being shed for us. In a moment, the worship team is going to come up and, and uh, lead us through, uh, with worship through music. And so I'm going to invite all of us, those who want to partake, to come and to grab the items. If you'd like to pray with someone, I'll be off to the side and I'd be happy to pray with you or for you uh, um, during this time. We want to be really clear because we know that uh, there's a lot of maybe varied experiences with the Lord's Supper in your past. And many of us have probably experienced this as kind of a ritualistic thing. Almost maybe something that we do so that God would be pleased with us. And we, we just want to verbalize against that, okay? This is not a ritual in any way. And so this is a chance to remember how Jesus has reconciled us to himself. And then how we as a local church are reconciled to one another out of this reality, out of Jesus' reconciliation with us. And so I want to encourage us to take a moment to examine our hearts to confess our sin, and even to do that, not just to God, but to confess our sin to one another as well. This is part of the communal expression of this, and to pray with one another as well. So I'm going to read a couple of verses here to lead us into this time of worship. Uh, why don't you all stand with me, and I'll read this, and then I'll pray for us. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to the disciples, and said, Take, eat. This is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Let's pray.